So last time we had spoken about the fundamental episode of transfiguration, which was with all the implications in spiritual practice. And we continue now from the paragraph number 18 from the Gospel of Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It is difficult to see why. At a later paragraph, actually the disciples like try to compete, like each one of them would like to be four first, each one of them would like to be the best. It's like they try to manifest their worldly ambition into some spiritual level, which is unfortunately something which often happens. And therefore they also ask here, like we want to know, how do we get great? And Jesus is disappointing them both times by taking away from them this willy, intentful power, it's kind of showing them that in the kingdom of heaven, spirituality is something else. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like these little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This can be interpreted in so many ways. It has been uh, sometimes interpreted in uh, hilarious ways. Because it is obvious that Jesus has in mind a certain simplicity. Remember that what are the spiritual qualities that a child would have. The child first of all has this absolute confidence. You tell it about Santa Claus and the child believes in Santa Claus. You tell it about God, or you tell it about walking on water, the child's mind is not having any skepticism, any cynicism, any uh, mistrust, and can adopt it. Should you take a child like the Tibetans do, very early in life, at the age of two or three or four, and put it to meditation and spiritual things, that child will be created very spiritual, because when it is a child, it already learns very easily. They go to the bottom of the being. That is why uh, in, uh, he, in India and in many other places, they have this theory, they say the soul of a child is built until the age of seven. The way the child has been raised, grown up till the age of seven, that's kind of the bottom line of the soul of that child. And to save, to change that, you can change that only through spiritual methods, through meditation and others, by going there to the bottom level and seeing what can be done. Therefore, this statement is a bit difficult to understand, because Jesus at the same time defines the condition of being a child as being humble, like, I don't know anything, I'm ready to learn, I'm open, I'm a blank disc, imprint me with something. I am having no power and I am not assuming anything. This is a bit exactly the opposite of the mind. The mind, the conscious mind along the years develops exactly the opposite of this. The mind starts developing, oh, I know this, I have learned that, I can take this for granted, I know that this is a fact, 
and actually they are not. This is Maya. This is the way the world is learning bad, is teaching you bad things, which make you believe in all kinds of things that are not reality. And in this way, actually you can say that yoga is a bit of an unlearning. It's like the man like Milarepa who can fly through the air, doesn't believe in the laws of gravitation anymore. The men who walk on fire or who can believe that they can turn the time back or the people who can do all kind of crazy things with their mind, it's like they stopped believing in the way of the world. If you don't believe the fire burns you, then it won't burn you. It may as well not burn you. Basically, it's very much a process of unlearning. And that is why Jesus refers, first of all, to a certain purity of consciousness. He simply says the child is as, as a virgin piece of paper. It's unwritten yet. After you write it, you can try to delete it with a rubber, but then it will not be never, ever as clean and as fresh as it was in the beginning. Basically, what Jesus says here takes us to the, with the thought to something which comes from the Buddhist tradition, when in a certain way they said that the monads, the souls, are starting from the very simple level of atoms and minerals and crystals and then coming to the organic life, the most simple forms of life and then the vegetal life and then the being associated with the animal realm of life and finally some spirits reaching to the point of being incarnated throughout the human realm or for, where finally they get uh, self-consciousness and then they have the chance to become Buddhas. It's like, this is represented like a circle. You come from the most primitive form of life and you go down and you go down and you go down until you reach the human life which is kind of furthest away but from the human life you can start going up like raising on the path of evolution and reaching again enlightenment. And basically, the statement would be that somehow enlightenment is as simple as a rock. The person who is in nirvana forever and ever is a little bit like a mineral, is a little bit like a crystal, is like pure. In nirvikalpa, there will be no thoughts, there will be no evaluation, there will be no judgment, there will be just the pure I am, there will be simplicity itself. That is why, in a certain way, you can say that it's coming back to the origin, that the spirit is pure Atman when it is associated with a mineral, and there are no emotions, there are no vital forces, there are no mental ideas, and then according as we develop to plant, animal, human, we start accumulating things on our astral body, things on our mental body, what the yogis call samskaras, things, residues, things which give a shape to our being. And actually all those, they are like a screen that hides the reality, this void, the great void which is like the sky. It's not that it's nothing, but it's like the bare sky, it's like the blue empty sky, which is not nothing, it is something, but it seems to be empty. You look at it and you say there is nothing on the sky. The sky is completely blank today. Actually, it is something. So the more things you have against the sky, against the background of the sky, then the more it is like, wow, I cannot uh, 
see the sky, I cannot understand the sky anymore. So basically, we can say that meditation and many spiritual techniques, they clarify our mind. They take all this kind of garbage and they start burning it away. And your mind is becoming like more and more simple. Not because you become idiotic, but there is a kind of peace of mind. It's like thinking in bigger concepts. That is why, again, some people will say, a yogi in Nirvikalpa Samadhi is like a rock. He has the simplicity of a mountain crystal. He does not think, he does not act, he is in complete ecstasy, and he can stay like this for a thousand years or whatever. Therefore, it's like turning back. It's like turning back to this pure condition of being nothing, of not being so smart and not having so many memories and giving up thoughts and giving up emotions and turning to a level which is really, really simple. But this turning back is not an identical condition because if you look at the clock and the upper position is the 12 o'clock, nobody would say that 11 o'clock is equivalent to 1 o'clock. One is on one side of the circle and the other one is on the other side of the circle. That is why coming back to this condition of enlightenment is different than being nothing, nevertheless, because it contains with it a memory, an experience. It's like you took a dip through the source of life and you have kind of accumulated something, although you have simplified. This simplification is always present Sometimes you get surprised of how some people, especially those who played anchorites and hermits, <clears throat> those who lived in the wilderness, how much they simplified their spirit. When you read the fathers of the desert, there's a wild story there about an old man. He had to do some domestic job because there was nobody around. This old man was all the time sitting in his hut and praying. And finally, he had to go out to do some menial job, some uh, domestic job. And this old man, of course, he was very humble and he was not afraid of work, so he had to go. But because he didn't want to spoil the emptiness of his prayer, suddenly he went out and he took a hat and he simply pulled the hat on his eyes so he could barely walk. He could only see just a little 30 centimeters in front of his feet. And like a blind mole like this, with his hat pulled on his eyes, he just walked, did the job, and then he came back to his room. Basically, in the way he didn't see anybody, he didn't see anything, he just the minimum necessary. And some of his disciples and other people there, they asked him, what is the meaning of this? You don't never get out of your room, you are gone always in your ecstasy or whatever it is, and now when you got out of your room, you finally covered your eyes, what's the meaning of this? And the guy said, you don't realize because you have never reached there. He said, but if I'm coming out and seeing even a tree, the residue of that tree stays in my mind for weeks and weeks and month and month, and it appears in my meditation, and it destroys my meditation. And therefore, I don't want to have my mind busy with anything. It's like my mind is a blank wall. Bodhidharma, when he came to China, his preferred meditation was that he was sitting in front of a white wall, a whitewashed, completely uniformous wall, sitting and looking at a white wall. What will you see by sitting ten hours straight and looking at a white wall? Nothing, basically. Your mind becomes as the wall, blank, completely. No thoughts, no memories, no ideas, no residues, no emotions, no nothing. 
Therefore, this is exactly, this is like the simplicity of a child. It's almost like a blank hard disk. It's uninscripted. It's not written. It's virgin. This virginal condition is exactly the one that Jesus alludes at. So Jesus does not actually mean children literally. He alludes to a certain condition of purifying the spirit, of eliminating the samskaras, of being in this condition like ready for a meditation. Like you are looking in the sky or looking at a blank wall and your mind is in a certain way what the Buddhists would call just emptiness. This emptiness would be like the one of a child and then it's kind of a child is so sensitive because anything can be put in its mind. You see, we develop a kind of defense things. We develop, we develop logics, value, philosophy, we evaluate and when something comes to us, we think, shall I take this in? Nah, this is not good to me. I don't think I'm going to take this in. It's kind of, we've got a censorship, but the child has no censorship. That old man, he couldn't stop a tree of getting into his brain. And therefore, he simply pulled the hat on his eyes because he didn't want even a tree. He said, if I see a tree, it's like my, my brain is so blank that it will immediately get imprinted because it's like thirsty for anything which could give it a particular impression. And then, I know, I'll have to pray for three weeks to forget this bloody tree. And therefore, it's better that I don't see it at all and I don't get my mind busy with it. This kind of uh, reality of the void is quite frightening. The beginner cannot understand this and very few people are able to make the last step to go that far into it to kind of give up everything because our memories, our emotions, the contents of our mind, we are so attached to it and it's like we refuse to become nothing, to become like children, simply to be blank and fresh again and simply to be able to reflect a reality in an unbiased way, in a completely fresh way or new. And that is why Jesus often compares the kingdom of heaven with children. He does not mean, of course, the lack of maturity of children or the others. He means exactly this lack of conscious mind that the children have not yet built tricks and strategies and defenses and evaluations. It's just a kind of a straight reflection. That is why he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a, there is a beautiful, beautiful example about Ramakrishna. In the life of Ramakrishna, his first guru, Sarada Devi, I'm sorry, that was his wife, his first guru, uh, Bhairavi Brahmani, she realized pretty soon that this disciple of hers was a very exceptional man. Because this young man, he was easily going in states of samadhi, he was easily having ecstasies, he was easily doing things, and this woman realized no ordinary boy would behave like this, or this man is special. So this woman, by analyzing the holy books of the time, and she consulted some of the big specialist experts of the time, and she had the suspicion that this young boy can be declared an avatar because he had the manifestations of a spontaneous spirituality. Even without having done yoga, at the time when he was seven years old, he had already reached the state of samadhi, as it was known already. And basically, she simply wanted to analyze this boy to see if this boy can indeed be classified as an avatar. 
and she called a big meetings of scholars, all the pundits, all the tantric experts, all the Buddha, all the Hindu experts of the time, and they were all like 30 people gathered to evaluate Ramakrishna. So Ramakrishna was like a, a man in front of a commission. He was like a man in front of a court, his case to be evaluated. And while these people were talking the dead serious issue, if Ramakrishna was an avatar or not, Ramakrishna, in the middle of the whole thing, was sitting like a retarded child on the earth, in the middle of the circle, and he was playing with some <coughs> dumb objects, which would have been the playing objects of a four-year-old child. Ramakrishna was like an oligophren, mentally retarded child. He was sitting there with some items, and he was like, whoa, whoa. he was just playing. with. And those people around him were talking if he's an avatar. And this man was kind of completely oblivious. Humble oneself like a child. Ramakrishna was actually the living vision of somebody who was in the kingdom of heaven and was like a child. Those people talked of intellect and Ramakrishna couldn't care less. He was just playing with something like completely oblivious. Like he was, you know, he didn't care a bit of what those people talked nonsense from the standpoint of somebody who had reached. And in this way, actually his behavior demonstrated the most brilliantly that actually this man indeed must have been anything special because everybody's ego would have <coughs> reacted in one way or another to this. Not Ramakrishna's though. And therefore, this is exactly that Jesus all the time resorts to this comparison to become like a child. He means at the same time to have this blank spirit to have this kind, like to be fresh, to be able to learn from scratch, to forget everything and to be able to learn, and to have this candor, this naivety, this complete trust of the children that can believe everything and for whom everything is very certain, very clear in this way. Also, you are going to see that very often Jesus compares the multitude of the human beings to children. He considers the average human being, he doesn't speak about his apostles in his own, in these terms, but he considers that this Tom, Dick and Harry, they are like children. This mass, this vast mass of the humanity that many people consider just like canon fodder, like Tom, Dick and Harry, Jesus considers them as children. They say these are spirits, which in a certain way they don't go too high, they don't go too low, and in a certain way they are like children. They are always ready to learn. They have not been imprinted neither by great good, they have not been imprinted either by great evil. They are somewhere still, it's an unwritten book. Their lives are unwritten books and they still wait to be written. And that is why he's having some bitter judgments on this later. But nevertheless, he says this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That means like Ramakrishna play oblivious of the outer world and that is much more valuable that's the first in the kingdom of heaven all these calculations and <coughs> intellectual things they are not exactly what makes the kingdom of heaven and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me he means the regular human being again it's like my brothers and sisters these little children these are the essence of humanity. From this we are challenging the divine spirits and the demonic spirits. It's like yet to be chosen.
But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. With this, Jesus defines as a terrible, terrible sin to mislead and to misguide the human beings. To mislead and to misguide human beings into something demonic because it says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me, he means when people are like children and clean, they automatically will believe in God just as children so sincerely can believe in God. But should one cause one of these naive, candid souls to sin and try to think how many things in the modern world are driving us to sin, are pushing us to sin. Think only about the famous seven capital sins of lust and uh, whatever, fornication and uh, then greed and lie and murder and all the other things and envy and whatever. It's kind of so many things in this life they push us to do exactly that and it's like complete uh, daily life, you know. If somebody lies, people don't even bat an eyelid, you know. It's kind of, well, you know, people lie, you know. And if people are gluttons or if people are killing in wars, or everybody seems to find it normal. It's kind of everything happens like everything is accepted, you know, that people can commit horrendous sins and others. And Jesus says, is accusing a lot the author, the corrupter, because he says these people, people, people's souls, they are like children. But whoever corrupts them, it is better for him that he should have been drowned. That means Jesus predicts a horrendous karmic reward, a horrendous divine wrath in the case of those that corrupt. That is why one of the worst things that you may ever do in this life is to become a corrupter, somebody who corrupts human souls. It is like Jesus says somewhere else, it would have been better for that human being not to have ever been born, because it's kind of, you are going head forward in the worst of the worst. You are simply becoming like an agent of the devil. You are simply becoming like an instrument of the hells. And actually Jesus says, woe to the world, because of the things that cause people to sin. Here Jesus is a little bit Vedantic, we must say. Jesus is a little bit like saying this world is a guilty Maya. Woe to the world because it has so many distractions, because there are so many temptations, and thus people are made to sin. It's kind of the world is guilty. Sometimes Jesus, who at the same time is the author of the highest consciousness, who is the partaker of the highest consciousness, falls a little bit into this Vedantic thing. And I have told you, and if I haven't made it clear at that time, let's clarify it now. Sometimes, you know that in spirituality we have these two types of spirituality. The Vedantin, dry spirituality, which considers this world a problem and a pain in the neck, and you should just escape from here and escape in Nirvana. And that's kind of the world negative, body negative type of one. 
and then you have this tantric larger vision in which this world is actually welcome to be the way it is because it is there with a purpose and in this way we have a wider understanding. But unfortunately this second vision which is metaphysically much more accurate and much more tolerant, it has a small problem and the problem of it is that it may push people to a kind of complacence, to a kind of laziness. At least the other one puts fire under your ass. It says you are a prisoner in a terrible place called Maya, and as long as you stay, you are going to be screwed from behind by all kinds of unknown forces, and you have to get out of here as soon as possible. You are having fire under your feet. Run, because if you stay, it burns you. This uh, philosophy of Vedanta, as well as Buddhism, does this, and the great ascetics, like the fathers of the desert, the Christian ascetics and others, have done the same, is a little bit, although it is a bit more uh, enemical, it's a little bit more like, wow, it creates hate to the world, fear to the world, at least it has a motivation, it really puts chili under you, and it motivates you, it speeds you up, that you shouldn't linger, you shouldn't try to indulge and so on. It's a very good educative thing. That is why sometimes Jesus, for the purpose of the daily person, he rather prefers to fall in this duality. The world is a shitty place and first emergency is get out of there. And then we're going to see if there is something more deeper, more tolerant, a greater understanding or whatever. So in this way, you can say that Jesus is using a dirty trick. He's kind of using a motivating thing sometimes, which is a typical Vedanta type of trick. Like this world is nothing. It's all a big lie and the more you stay, the more you waste your time. In a certain way, it's smart. This is a lie which has been perpetuated in history a lot, and it has good pedagogical effects to think like this. It is perhaps almost as Rajneesh was saying in one of his books. He simply said, if, if we are locked in a room and outside is nirvana, and all of you are lazy and don't want to get out to see what nirvana is, I have two ways. I can simply tell you, wow, you know, I've been outside and there is sunshine, there is beauty, there is nature, there is eternal, why don't you come out and see? And still many of you will say, uh, get up and walk, it's so difficult, maybe later. It's kind of, you don't find the motivation for it. And then he says, I can do it in another way. I can simply shout, fire, fire, fire. And then you'll all panic and rush out through the door. And you'll find yourself in nirvana, but I lied to you to get you there. Are you going to forgive me that I lied to you to get you there? Probably, yes. You are going to say, whatever you did to kick our ass to get us here, it's welcome, it's important that we have reached. And therefore, sometimes some religions, and especially these dualistic religions, like Jesus is resorting often to this model, they use rather scary models, because they know that this is more dynamic. This puts fire under your bottom and you are going to sit down and practice with a great inspiration. And the others, if you don't understand them properly, they can generate complacence, as I said, and uh, slow down your digestion, your evolution, I'm sorry. That is why Jesus says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. It's like this world is a trap 
woe to the world. He almost woos the world. He shuns the world. He is very rough to it. And in other situations, he says the same. He even uses the expression to to defeat the world. He simply says some people don't belong to this world because they have defeated it. He almost describes like a war to the world, a war with the world, which is pretty radical. This is a typical dry Vedantic approach to it. Such things must come. Here is the wisdom. He knows that such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. That means the destiny of the world can contain the necessity for a, for a Hitler or for a Stalin. But still woe to that man who does this because he is a man and he had the choice to step out of it. That means there is no obligation for Stalin to become Stalin. He still being a demonic spirit, he has chosen to be that. If Stalin would have said, I'd rather cut my carotid arteries and kill myself rather than becoming this, then nobody would have been able to push that man to be that. He was not a victim. He was a victim who at some point accepted to be the monster which he became. And that is why Jesus says such things must come. That means in the planetary karma they are there, but you never know who is going to be the agent of it and therefore woe to the man through whom they come. That means that does not dispel individual responsibility. The individual has the possibility to step out and to say, look, I'm perhaps supposed to become a kind of a monster, but I refuse. I refuse to become one. I won't be a monster. And then that is exactly where the individual consciousness tells. And uh, therefore, and now he comes back to the statement which we have encountered already, and he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. The implication is clear. This life is full of a lot of illusions and we think that sometimes right is wrong and whatever. And because of this, Jesus is very intolerant. He obviously goes into the values of the spirit and he says sometimes it's good even to lose the comfort of this life to have your soul in the right place because else it's the eternal fire as he calls it and that is much, much worse than everything else. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. That is as clear as it can be with this, Jesus again refers to the multiple temptations of this Maya and he encourages a kind of radical attitude. That is why we must say that at the deepest levels of Christian mysticism, you always find people who are terrible, people who are frightening. When you read the lives of the fathers of the desert, they were this kind of people. If your right eye disturbs you, take it out, plug it out, because it is better to do that than to lose yourself completely. People who are completely, completely committed to this spiritual goal, like having a zero degree of tolerance in this way, like no compromises shall ever be made. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, which means 
the ignorant one, the beginner, the blank spirits, the children of God. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That's a wonderful statement. Here Jesus makes a clear allusion to angels. And he suddenly says, such clear spirits are always related to the angel. And basically he says, their angel sees my Father in heaven. I think it was Lopsang Rampa, the controversial, who interpreted this saying as saying that the angel in heaven about which Jesus speaks here would be nothing else but the layers of the subconscious mind. It's like these people, through some part of them, which is their own subconscious mind, because being so blank, so pure, are already sh- they are so transparent that they have access directly to the truth but if the mind is becoming full of samskaras and if all kind of black residues settle down on the bottom of your cup of coffee, then automatically you are not in touch. It's like you are lacking this common sense. It's like you are lacking this uh, instinct which the animals have. Sometimes animals living in wilderness as well as saints who lived in wilderness, they have got a kind of a, a sixth sense, a kind of common sense, a kind of intuition which makes you understand nature. But people who think too much and who are polluted too much is like they lose this kind of common sense. It is for this reason that many yogis have claimed that one of the greatest gurus which you have in life, your angel which sees God face to face or whatever, the see the face of my father, says Jesus here, it's uh, basically is the common sense because the universe is actually ruled by common sense. And that is why it's funny to see that one of the most ridiculous thing is that people lose the common sense. Look at some of these sects and weird religions. It's like they've got no common sense. They claim some things which are preposterous and at the same time you lose the common sense of life. Look at some of the Zen masters or some of the patriarchs of Taoism or Chinese Buddhism and so on, and they practice this common sense down to earth. Somebody is asking Dojen or whoever, whatever his name was, I don't think it was Dojen, it was another one of the great patriarchs, and while everybody was talking metaphysics, Dojen or whoever his name was, I remember now the name of Dojen, but it might have been somebody else, was just measuring the rice for the daily food. You know, because that's the kind of life. And people, and then somebody, there is this Zen uh, paradox, then like a koan of Zen, that Dojen was quietly measuring the rice for his day, and somebody comes suddenly and says, Dojen, or master, or whatever, sensei, what is the essence of your enlightenment? And Dogen, who simply doesn't hear the question because he's focused on what he's doing, he concludes at the same second the counting of his rise by a wonderful synchronicity. And that guy says, uh, Sensei, what is the essence of your enlightenment? And Dogen answers, two bushels of rice. It's kind of, you know, what's the essence of enlightenment? Two bushels of rice. You are flying high and having no common sense, you know. This is what life is. This is what the reality is. Where are you flying? You know, it's kind of absolutely ridiculous. Somebody expects 
a metaphysical answer, and Dogen splashes it completely, ruins it completely, by saying two bushels of rice. That's what it is. This is a typical Zen thing, in which he simply says, don't fly high. Peel your potatoes, drink your cup of tea, and measure your two bushels of rice. That's where enlightenment is. It's like you are lacking common sense. Andre van Lisbeth, one of the uh, biggest experts in European yoga for the last 20-30 years, he had a saying. People asked him, what is your preferred guru? Because he learned from many teachers and so on. And he said, well, I fit with many gurus, but I think my best guru is Swami Common Sense Ananda. He said it in French, Bon Sang. Swami Bon Sang Ananda. It's kind of Swami Common Sense Ananda is your guru. Look at people of some religious aberrations. They are lacking the common sense. And on the contrary, a man like Shivananda or a woman like Mahananda Mai, they are full of common sense at the same time. This common sense is such a great value. And that is why Jesus says, when you are simple, that's why remember he said, blessed are the simple in spirit, because they see God. It's kind of, it's very simple. It's like open your eyes, see, it's not in the mind. And here he upgrades it. He says, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. It's like, okay, they don't realize yet what they see, but their angels in heaven, their deep levels of the subconscious mind or something of which they are not yet conscious is directly in contact with the ocean of spirit. There is no impurity separating them from the great common sense of the ocean of universal consciousness. It's a beautiful thing because Jesus introduces the concept of angel as something which you don't yet see or know and which is in contact. Remember that if Jesus says this, it automatically will involve that some angels, the angels of some other people, they don't see always the face of the Father in heaven, which is pretty paradoxical because you'll say what? We expect that the angels should always be at the table of God, being able to have access to it. Here Jesus introduces a pretty disturbing concept, which shows somehow the angel, the so-called angel, related to the human being as a kind of uh, subtle counterpart, something very subtle, again like Rampa we can say, the deep levels of the spirit, which either is in contact with reality, or it has a distorted relationship, an impure screen between itself and reality. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones, that any of these little ones should be lost. In this way, this is a little bit like the parable of the wandering son, of the prodigal son, that the prodigal son went and wasted himself, he came back and the father was so happy and the other one couldn't understand it and the father had to, uh, to explain to him, look, you are always with me, you have everything but this one was lost and I found him. One who is lost and found produces like more happiness 
than the other 99 which are always there. And that is why, uh, in this way, it simply says God is always seeking for the lost ones. This has a great importance. And therefore, it simply says, don't think that any spirit in this world is unimportant to God. Because a simple, sh- a single sheep lost will make the divine consciousness focus more on the lost one than on the other ones which are walking the right track. It's an interesting view which shows that sometimes the divine consciousness is thinking by very special values. The divine consciousness has values which might not always be understandable logically, like focuses very much on an issue that this has to be solved now or then. There is a much more beautiful one like this with the famous parable of the workers in the vineyard who are paid in different ways or who are paid in similar ways, I'm sorry, although they work in a different way. And it's kind of like God is unfair in maybe a positive way, but still unfair. And actually it is not so as Jesus so beautifully explains. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a quote from the Deuteronomy, the book of the laws of ancient uh, Jews, that this was like settle the thing then with witnesses. So it's like the power of the consciousness. Jesus has a very interesting issue coming up here. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the church of the day, to the religious authority, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as if you would a pagan or a tax collector. In this way, Jesus is not very politically correct or democratically here again, because he basically considers that people can be treated in different ways, he, when he says, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, that's a pretty painful statement, because how would you treat a pagan or a tax collector? Not very nicely, apparently, like not giving full respect and full consideration. It's a bit of the German untermännische, subhuman, right? Because it's kind of, they are not as good as the others. And this concept existed very powerful. The Jews had it very powerful, even in some painful ways, in some in their old Talmudic culture. And because of this, here Jesus is obviously inheriting this, and it, this has survived painfully in the Christian spirit, unfortunately being taken without love or the proper consideration. Even in the 18th century, the Christians of Europe, either they were the opium smugglers of the East India Company, in uh, Hong Kong, or they were the ones who were killing Red Indians in America, or uh, whatever abominations they were doing in Africa or in South America, they considered themselves superior because the others were pagans. They were just outsiders, and it's kind of you couldn't deal with them, uh, or here tax collectors as a kind of ultimate sinners or whatever. Unfortunately, this hard thing that you can exert a kind of neutrality. It's kind of, you know what? I don't mix up with you, you know? I try to tell you the truth. I I try to tell you my way. We did it even with witnesses. 
I simply used the religious community of the time. If it is not there, then for me at least, you are an outsider. It's like you are dead. You are somewhere out there. I don't want to hear about you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to interact with you. I don't visit you. You don't visit me. It's kind of your life goes that way and my life goes this way. Obviously, a man like Jesus cannot imply things which are drastic in the meaning of uh, nasty, unpleasant, discriminative in a nasty way because a man like Jesus teaches uh, overwhelming forgiveness and overwhelming tolerance. But nevertheless, you see that Jesus, in spite of doing that, he puts people into categories. He says, don't take the bread of the Pharisees. It's like there are many things which are bad in this world and you don't want to mix with those things. It's kind of, you know, brother, brother. It's good to be brother, but this doesn't mean you should throw yourselves in the jaws of the crocodile like an idiot just because we are all brothers. This kind of concept of uniformity of today, this Vadistanistic democracy of today, in which everything is rather a tohu vabohu, a chaos, as the Bible calls it, a crazy chaos, this is not what Jesus... Jesus has a structure. There are some people that are worth following as example, and there are some people who, although they are the children of the same God as you, still you may consider that it's unfit to mingle with them and they are kind of pulling you down, blinding you, corrupting you or whatever. And in this way, the people are equal at some place, but for your own spiritual growth, it is not the same in what company you are or who you are. He says, woe to the man through whom this corruption comes. It's not equal and it is not to be taken lightly like this. Some people, they have this brain-dead thing, which I told you often, uh, in the New Age, I found uh, a counter-proverb uh, to it. Uh, there was a saying of the day in an Indian calendar, which says, when you want to have an open mind, make sure that your brain doesn't flow off your head, your skull. That means to have an open mind doesn't mean to lose your common sense and to start accepting things which are abominable or inacceptable and simply because we have to be open, dear, and we have to accept everything. We have to be open, but this does not deny the fact that you can preserve your values and be a person with a system of your own values which is preferably very spiritual. And in that way, uh, yes, sometimes we are witnessing today, either because of political correctness or because of some of this New Age's Vadistanistic confusion, that some of the most sacred things of spirituality, not only one spirituality, like the words of Jesus, but other forms of spirituality of this planet, are simply dragged through the mud because they are not modern anymore. They are not tolerant. They are not uh, politically correct. This is exactly where we come to this conflict. Like today, the powers that be, the people that manipulate this humanity, if people stick to their Christian truths or Islamic truths or God knows what other truths, people are suddenly labeled as sectants, fanatics, fundamentalists. A fundamentalist is a man who actually refuses to let go of his stable truths of religion and to embrace this kind of 
colorless, tasteless, uh, new age-ish, modern-ish, western-ish, american-ish, whatever type of uh, equality of everything and that everything goes. According to the old religions, starting with the old prophets and Hindus and whoever, and of course the Christians and the Islamics and all the others, the Sufis and whatever, not everything goes. Nobody ever said everything goes, because it's not true. Some things go and some things don't go at all. That is why we live in a world without values, and that is why uh, Jesus here is very clear, like there is a hierarchy, you try to win over, but there is also a moment when you can manifest detachment. That means it is allowed of you to try to try over, to try through all the legitimate methods, beautifully, using the resource of the human consciousness, like, hey, wake up, be conscious, things are like this. If I'm right, then look, I can prove I'm right at this. And if not, then one can simply stay away and have this kind of dismissive attitude. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be losing in heaven. This is more a reference to his own disciples, because now he speaks to the disciples, so he doesn't refer, he makes a, here, he makes always a distinction. He makes a distinction between the children and those who corrupt the children, and he does not put the disciples in the same category, because these are already people who are initiates. They are people who have a heavier responsibility on their shoulders. He says, even the hairs on your head are accounted for. You already are something special. That means it's two categories of humanity. Those who have responsibility and are initiated, and the great mass, which are like children, and woe to those who causes these ones to fall, because that's where the problem is. And that is why he assures them again, that's the essence of Christian priesthood, that whatever is bound will be bound in heaven, whatever is losing will be losing in heaven. It's a kind of correspondence which promises an incredible magic power through this mystery that was left by Jesus. More about it later, because at some point Jesus comes more on it. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. This is one of the most disturbing and beautiful statements uh, made by Jesus. It's such an amazing one, because here Jesus alludes to the common quality of consciousness, to be able to agree it is to be able to be in one spirit. It's like having the same spiritual understanding when you truly agree to the bottom, when you truly agree to the fundamental level. And that's where he speaks about the law of resonance. By resonance, the multiplication of a phenomenon is not linear. The multiplication of a phenomenon is exponential. That is why a man and a woman putting their energy together, they don't give one plus one is not equal to. One plus one in Tantra may be equal three or five because the energy suffers an avalanche effect. And that is why Jesus says it's very important to agree by this Jesus delivers automatically 
the secrets of collective meditation and collective prayer. Because if two people manage to put themselves in the same spirit, then the effect is not double. The effect is triple or quadruple or tenfold or whatever through the miracle of this avalanche effect. It's exactly like the avalanche effect in physics that there is an exponential multiplication. And that is why, remember, we cannot agree with the others because we are not in the same spirit. We are in soap bubbles. People are, each one of them, isolated by their ahamkara in yoga, by their egoism, by their sense of ego. This is me and my territory, that's you and your territory. And it's kind of, we can't be friends, we can't communicate, we can't share ideals because I am separate from you. But in the moment when you break the barriers of the ego, it is possible for people to be together. And being together, it is like love, real love, the spiritual love, the non-sexual love, the love at the level of Atma, the love at the level of the self. And that is why Jesus says, this is automatically divine. When you reach that point where you and your brother can think the same, want the same, it's actually like you are united in your spirit and you have reached something which is divine. Because indeed, we all hold our feet in the same lake. We all walk up till our ankles in a pond of water. There is something which unites us at a level. There is a part of our minds which is part of the planetary collective subconscious mind and there is part of our minds which is collective where we are all one if you go deep enough. So we are united with each other. We are like the fruits of the same tree. We have something in common. The tree upon which we grow. That is why we are not truly separate. This humanity is not made of entities that are truly separate, but a little bit like the cells of one body. It's like if the most important cells of the body die, the whole body dies, and then basically we are interdependent. Jesus defines here an interdependence, which is explainable only at the level of Atman, at the level of the Supreme Self, that we all have the same divine nature ultimately, and we share the same God. And that is why what Jesus says is fundamental. He says, if two can agree, or more, he implies as well, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, because you ask from the right level. You are already a little bit in God, if two people can agree fundamentally on something. They already have reached so deep in their relationship that they are actually somewhere at a divine level. This is valid both for a man and a woman who can make love and use the same mantra and work with the same cosmic power and therefore agree. When a man and a woman do this, your Father in Heaven fulfills that. It's fulfilled because it is at the level of the Spirit. And Jesus says it, it's this fundamental sentence which has been quoted so often. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. That means God manifests through this union of spirits. When the spirits are put together, you are forced to acknowledge that part which is common. It's like we are all sharing something, but what are we sharing? Only when we are together can we start discerning 
this thing which is like a collective spirit, like an egregore, if you prefer, like a group soul, which is therefore closer to the divine, of the divine nature. And there says, when two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. It's the most wonderful way of invoking the divine nature. That is why even the Christian mystics, the fathers of the desert and others, when they recommended spiritual practice, they often said, it is good to go alone, but sometimes people who go alone and stay too much alone, they may also err. They may also get crazy or start doing things which are because they are, they can get misguided. Therefore, they said the ideal model of practice is like this. Take two or three spiritual friends, go together, make a small community, pray together, practice together, and that's the best way. Because if you err, somebody is going to correct you. The others are going to look and say, Walter, you are starting to get crazy. We others, we two or three, we start telling you, man, you are starting to lose it. You are starting to lose common sense. Please come back. And basically when your friends tell you this, it's like your friends are your gurus. It's like the divine spirit works through them and you are in the spirit two or three in my name. I am with them and therefore it's impossible to lose the common sense. Even if one should go wrong, the other three work like an equalizing force which automatically brings you back to the common sense to the center so you cannot err and when it's just two or three people it's not a big community it doesn't have administrative problems it's not the question who's in charge who does all the administrative works that is why many monks and nuns they prefer to group themselves in cells of three not two two is too little because Let's give a stupid example. If I am with my friend and we live alone in a hut in the mountains, suddenly we can develop a weird idea and we can become having anal sex, become homosexuals or whatever. And there is not any third one who would tell us, guys, you are going. What is this, you know? It's kind of... So two is not enough. It should be at least three. So they recommend groups of three, four, five, maximum six. So because if it gets too big, they start appearing administrative problems or whatever. Small groups in a cell, they live in the same place, they do the same spiritual practice, they practice together, that's kind of, then you don't need anything. You have got all the guidance, you have got the divine spirit with you already, because it works through this community thing. And that is why, this is why in yoga, it's very beautiful when people do yoga in groups, that's why we practice in yoga, this education of yoga in groups of study. Because people who are in the same groups of yoga, somehow they inspire each other, they correct each other, they adjust each other, and the others are like your mirror. You look yourself and see yourself in the others, and then you start realizing, uh-oh, I'm losing it, I'm going, you know. And it's kind of, I can see it. So for me, the others are like the face of God. The others are keeping me in the common sense and they are keeping me on the path. So in that way, there is a great force in this and that force comes from the one divine consciousness because at a certain level, we are one. At a certain level, the breath of God, the spirit of God is just one. And that is why there is a level where we can share that and here Jesus recommends it through this 
agreement, through this praying together, like you should ask for it, says like for prayer, and he says for where two or three come together, but he says in my name, come together in my name, that means it's on a religious issue, it's on spirit, it's not being together for playing backgammon, it's being together in my name, that means obviously for prayer, for meditation, then automatically I am with them. That is why it is considered that the path of the hermit, like those of you who like to be completely alone, like loners, that's a little bit more difficult. But the compromise perfect solution is to be able to group yourselves in small groups, like cells of three, four, five friends in spirit, who are friends for life, and they will be doing spiritual practice together for life, the others never letting any one of the others to fall off the path. It's like the others are your safety string, they are your safety belt, which keeps you in the spirituality. So in this way, there is a great practical teaching hidden in these words of Jesus, not to mention of the fact that, of course, when people congregate in a spiritual way, the answer of God is much vaster. It's an avalanche effect, and the vaster the number, the more the effect becomes overwhelming. That is why it is interesting sometimes to see religious phenomena, sincere religious phenomena, which are of mass. Like, for example, anyone who has ever practiced in this Indian overwhelming thing known as the Kumbha Mela. In the Kumbha Mela, there was one this year, if I remember correctly. In the Kumbha Mela, you can again see this crazy thing. Because in the Kumbha Mela, they usually come around 7 to 10 million Hindus. It's kind of unimaginable. If you have never seen a Kumbha Mela, have never seen like this, because you don't understand what 7 million believing people gathered in one square kilometer can actually do. It's a force which even if those people are weak, just because they keep on asking for the same thing, such as they ask for purification of karma, that's one of the things of the Kumbha Mela, it's a ritual bath, and they say if you bath at this exact, if you take a bath, if you bathe at this exact moment in this place, the sins of a hundred lifetimes are going to be wiped off. And many, many people say, yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's a matter of faith. Jesus says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take your bed and go home? Basically, he says, if you have faith, you can move the mountain. If people believe in it and they, all of them, millions, ask to God for it, how shouldn't God answer such a formidable group question, uh, demand, request? And therefore, it can actually happen through the collective overwhelming force of faith put together, because if two or three who gather in my name and I am there, then what if seven million gather in my name? Then it's quite surprising what is happening. And that is why all the religions and the others, they have used this group power for developing the presence of the divine. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times, that apparently was a measure given by Moses or by some old uh, text, like you should forgive seven times or whatever. And he says, shall I do it by the book? And Jesus answered, 
I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Basically, it's a parable, which means almost indefinitely. Like, forgive and forgive and don't count. I hope you, none of you will take this literal, because it's obviously a game with numbers. He says, shall I forgive seven times? And Jesus says, seventy-seven times. It's like, forget about it, you are not going to count it, right? So, nobody counts, okay, you are up till 75, be careful, two times more, and I'm going to fry you. It does, it's not literal, 77, it means 77, like, forget about it, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, and so on. And he gives a wonderful parable, explaining that, which is both the reason of, which is both a wonderful argument for compassion, for forgiveness, for humbleness, it's one of the cornerstones again. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven, like means this reality of the divine, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The king is God, and the servants is, of course, the human souls. The souls. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. <coughs> That's a unit, a coin of the time. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. This is like the man who has a terrible karma, right? And suddenly he asks to God, God, be patient. Give me a little time and I really am going to pay everything. And the man prays to the king, prays to God, be patient with me. The servant's master took pity on him. That's the compassion of God. That's the grace of God. Cancel the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, or a sub-servant, whatever, who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, like even, it's like the proportion between 10,000 talents and Hundred denarii is like a proportion of uh, ten, hundred thousand to one, or something like this, because these talents were very big units, and the denarii were just uh, little coins or whatever. So it's like really something small to make a contrast. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. He was just forgiven for a big debt, but he did not consider that. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him be patient with me and I'll pay you back exactly as this other fellow had first done to go with God but he refused instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt when the other servants saw what had happened they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened then the master called the servant in you wicked servant he said I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Obviously, if he can pay by torture, you understand obviously that it's karma we are talking over because you cannot pay debts by torture else if it's money literally taken. This is how Jesus concludes, My heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That means basically what Jesus says, don't be so squeamish 
about forgiving a hundred denarii debts. If people do shit to you, that's a hundred denarii worth of debts. God has forgiven you for being an asshole for millennia and millennia. And that's a debt of 10,000 talents. So don't compare it. That's why Jesus says forgive 77 times, not 7 times. It's kind of forgive 70 times 7, really. Because what does it matter? You compare it to the debt which you have to God, that's nothing. You see, Jesus here uses an important trick which is the, which is the essence of humbleness. Jesus says it is good sometimes to feel that you owe God. It is good sometimes to feel that you are a sinner. This modern new age thing, oh, I'm perfect, oh, we are all spirit, is just a puffed up ego, which is not having basis in spirituality. It's using spiritual words without the spirit of it. Jesus knows that we are spirit. But on the other hand, if you want to take it like this, who is perfect? Nobody is perfect. We all do a lot of mistakes. Somewhere in the Bible, I don't think I have the Psalms here, but maybe, yes, I do. The famous, let's see if I have that particular one. There's only a quote from it. I will try to get it for you to see how the famous psalm of repentance sounds. And then you understand a little bit more. It's the famous Psalm number 51. It's uh, the other edition. It's probably the first, the King James edition. So it's written in this archaic language. But nevertheless, it will, it says what is to be said. And there is another prayer. which I don't have here, there is a prayer which is used by some Christian churches for communion, before communion, in which you basically confess more or less having committed any possible sin on the face of the earth. You confess like murder, adultery, indifference, criminal behavior, whatever, because it's kind of, you can as well confess it all, and it still doesn't equal the 10,000 talents for which God has forgiven you. Try to think like this. We are supposed to be divine spirit, and look how the people live their lives. If you, if God would be an intolerant, revengeful perfectionist, God would have all the time to wipe the table, to wipe the slate clean all the time. Because you will say, look at them. I gave them the divine spirit and they live like animals. Kill them all, you know. Wipe them out and let's try again. Or well, anyhow, I got bored. I want to take a holiday. I don't want to try anymore or whatever. It's kind of, if there would be perfectionism, we would be compared to the immortal gods or other would be like cockroaches. We'd be like completely disgusting, at a completely disgusting level of life. And yet, we are tolerated. We are tolerated to be the way we are with the gracious hope that one day we will become conscious and responsible and one day we will be Buddhas. One day we'll be compassionate, enlightened beings. But alas, when is that going to happen? So basically the great mystics, they have simply uh, experienced this 
awareness of the fact that God is forgiving us every day. Every day we betray God because we are not perfect that we are supposed to be through our spirit. And exactly as God tolerates our cockroach-like existence in the hope of one day becoming enlightened and compassionate, how shouldn't we forgive the trifles of life and pretend so arrogantly that we have to punish and we cannot forgive? When we ourselves are forgiven deaths which are gigantic, the very existential deaths of the fact that we live in ignorance and blindness when we are supposed to be immortal spirit. And that is why uh, the psalm number 51 of David, it is called the psalm of repentance, and it is often said a repentance, and it's a way in which again David, the prophet, the mystic, is singing from the heart, Exactly this repentance. You can say, when did this guy did all this shitty thing? It's obviously he's putting ashes on his head. It's like as he's overdoing it. He is accusing him of more than he has done. But actually the mystics say, you can freely do that because you have actually done much worse. You are wasting your life. You are mistreating the spirit of God. You are born with the spirit of Buddhahood and with the divine consciousness in you and you live partly and you live ignorantly. That is such an offense to the divine. It's like you prostitute the spirit of God to such an ugly extent that no punishment. You would deserve simply to be wiped out. And yet God allows you to be with the gracious hope of enlightenment and realization and compassion. And that is why you should forgive 70 times 7 because the things of daily life are nothing compared to the great gift of consciousness that God permanently overflows. Therefore, the great mystics, they humble themselves. They always felt we are in debt of God. Even when we forgive every day everybody and still we owe God big time because we are far, far from being perfect and therefore we cannot raise our head arrogantly and say, God, I'm perfect. After all, why don't you allow me to kick some ass? Because, you know, I'm perfect and I can afford to pass some judgment. It's not quite. Listen to the Psalm 51 as an idea of repentance. One day maybe I'll get for you the other prayer. I don't know where to find it now, whose it is or what is it called. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, wash me thoroughly, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, 
that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall shew forth thy praise. For thou desirest no sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broke, he means a humble spirit, broken with humbleness. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bollocks upon thine altar. This, this is the psalm of repentance, which comes, which is a classical, which comes exactly onto this idea. That's why Jesus is very adamant on this, and he says, you don't forgive, then God is, might turn back and ask you about your original debt, which is horrendous, libic, and therefore it is better that since you receive mercy all day long, you should give a lot of tolerance and a lot of mercy yourself because that is the law. So Jesus simply puts things into the right perspective. It says maybe you think your life is isolated, but your life is not isolated. Your life is in a bigger understanding and that is why since you are this divine spirit, you have to freely you have received, freely you have to give. There is a lot way to go until you will reach the measure of God and can say, now I am on an even hand with God and I can kind of start condemning and so on because now between me and God there is a kind of a friendship or equality or whatever. You cannot have that arrogance too soon unless you walk on the water like Jesus and do all those things. And for this reason, uh, we are having here the great issue of forgiveness not seven times but 77 times whatever that means let's go a little bit further we still have perhaps a 15 minutes to go when Jesus had finished saying these things he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Again, the same thing, testing him. Just This is very heartless. It's the very skeptical, cynical, sarcastical thing. That's why they never receive the right answers. They always are being answered in a very dismissive way. They ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, like it is in the Genesis, 
he means obviously the archetypal nature of man and said because the Genesis say that the God has made them male and female and basically this refers to the human nature but it was before Eve was created and that involves that Adam, the first man, must have been male and female at the same time. That's the idea of a complete being, the androgene, the male, female, not in the pathological, hermaphroditical, she-male type of modern sexual weirdness, but we're talking here about the alchemic concept, the ancient Greek alchemic concept of androgenity, of the synthesis of the... So basically Jesus says the female and the male nature are from the beginning made to be one. We are searching for oneness, not for division. While you are supporting here an idea, even external, which is an idea of division. Because these people did not say, should people separate and go and do practice with each other. Because that has happened. For example, the story of the family of Jesus says that Mary herself, the mother of Jesus, was a child which was born by a bit of a miracle. It was She was a daughter which was born to Joachim, Joachim, whatever his name is, and Anna, the grandfathers of Jesus, the parents of Mary, Joachim and Anna. They had this daughter, this only one child, Mary. They had her when they were very old and basically Anna was supposed to be barren already. And these people noticing that they are old and they stay without children, they prayed to God to give them a child, to give them, and they promised that whatever, they took some vows that this child will be kept very nice and whatever, spiritual and whatever. And then apparently the miracle has happened and Joachim and Anna, they had this daughter called Mary. And at some point, Mary got adult and she got married to Joseph and you probably know the story. If not, you are going to find it from the equivalent, from the alternative Gospels, from the other Gospels here in time because we are going so slowly. But um, what I'm trying to say is very of you perhaps know that Joachim and Anna, after Mary got married, they separated from each other, but not to go to fuck around. They separated each other to live their lives in prayer for God. And basically they lived five kilometers from each other in Wadi Kelt, in a, one of the canyons, which is 30 kilometers east of Jerusalem. There is a canyon where it's very difficult to get today because of all these warlike conditions in that area. But there is a monastery in the middle of the Wadi Kelt, which is a later creation. It's called St. George. And if you go beyond that towards Jericho, there is a canyon which goes 10 kilometers. And in that canyon, among others, you have the huts, the caves, in which in one of them lived Joachim. And five kilometers lower down the canyon, or the other way around, I don't remember, lived Anna. Basically, this man and woman, they are 50, they are 60, whatever they were, when they were 60 and their daughter was married, they looked in each other's eyes and they simply said, now it's time to separate, no more sex, no more popcorns, no more hanky-panky, no more things. We are going to pray to end our lives in God, to end our lives with God. That means they refused to each other the gift of a comfortable old age 
to prop each other's shoulder and to grow old together. The best way to grow old together is to separate and to die in God. And if I remember correctly, they set a rule that they will meet once a year. One day per year, they were coming out of their caves and one of them was walking to the other and they were allowed to meet. The caves are still there. You can go and see them. That's a kind of a spiritual way of... Jesus is not talking about this divorce like people should separate. It's obviously that it's a divorce in which people actually are incompletely developed sexually. They are dissatisfied with each other and they would divorce just to remarry. It's just like an eternal sexual recombination. It's just going around. So it's not the idea of separating for a spiritual, for a superior spiritual life. It's the idea of separating because you actually were incapable to reach union. It's like you tried and you are chickening out. It didn't work in the first three years. And then you say, well, it doesn't work. We divorce and we try again somewhere else. That's like exactly like in yoga when you dig ten different holes. It's like you do two years of yoga, two years of tai chi, two years of uh, God knows what other thing, two years of Tibetan Buddhism, two years of Sufi dancing, and you never get anywhere because you keep on drilling short holes. It's like people who don't have perseverance. It's people who don't have the patience to dig deep in a relationship, in a marriage. As we already said before, Jesus is coming with this. Marriage is not supposed just to tickle your genitals and to be a pleasant thing. It's not just pleasure to the senses. Marriage is an opportunity to develop a lasting relationship which more often than not, it's going to hurt you. Remember what Kahlil Gibran, I read you about love in the Prophet. He says, it's going to make you shed a lot of tears and it's going to beat you with a hammer big time and therefore love is kind of a rough master, but at the same time it is just going to take you white as snow, to give you the realization. And that is why Jesus is never looking upon this bourgeois satisfactory social marriage, and therefore he says, why don't you dig deeper? That is why Jesus is the adept that a relationship, as long as there is any reasonable chance to have it spiritual, should not be given up. That is why Jesus very often dismisses the idea of divorce, which was quite clear in it. Basically, Jesus says, it's better to turn your marriage into a hell and to get disenchanted with everything and to live ten hours in prayer every day because then you'll reach enlightened than rather to have a kind of fornicating, going around thing where you are like a butterfly flying from flower to flower and you'll never dig a well to reach water. It's like you refuse to confront difficulties because basically there is a yoga in this, as you very well know. There is a yoga in relationship that two become one. And here is how Jesus argues. The Creator made them male and female, He said. And, and said, God said, and it's a quote from one of the prophets from the Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, they are not longer two, says Jesus, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, 
let men not separate. That means it is a bigger purpose and we separate it with our ego just because our ego doesn't tolerate the difficulties and we are ready to chicken out saying, no, this is not going to work. It's not. It's too early most often to say this is not going to work. You have to stay on the barricades and fight the big battle. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? As you can see, this is a more manipuristic way. It's kind of a social contract. And if it doesn't work, I give you a certificate and you just go away. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. He basically says, you are going around. You are not digging your first well. And therefore, uh, in this, Jesus is pretty tough. Here he is again pretty perfectionist. He says, stay there and fulfill it. Shed tears if necessary, but fulfill rich perfection. This is a chance for you. Uh, but uh, the other one, he is a drunk and he beats me up. It's not your problem. Your problem is for you to reach perfection. If you would be like an angel or if you would be like Jesus, how would you love then somebody who may be a drunk or beat you up or do whatever? Can you take it? How would a perfect loving person, a perfectly loving spirit, react then? And therefore, Jesus is obviously trying to turn the institution of marriage from bourgeoisie to prayer, from daily life to spirituality. That is why he says Moses did it as a compromise, because he knew you are assholes and you are not going to listen. If you put rules that were too tough, then you are going to disobey anyhow. And basically, he says so. But, he says, it was not this way from the beginning. Whatever this beginning is, Adam and Eve, or Satya Yuga, the golden age, or simply the archetypal will of God, the way of being of angels, or whatever, he says, it's not the same from the beginning. It was different. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. I mean, they are again chickening out the other way because they say, well, there is a lot of shit and then rather not to marry. I mean, it's kind of really strict what you're asking from us. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Here, finally, Jesus talks about sexual continence, the Brahmacharya, because he simply says, it would be so, but not everybody can accept that. That means people are weak, and I cannot tell that. That is why even later, you will see that the Apostle Paul is uh, taking the same thing. And he says, if it were according to me, I would advise you all to be celibate as I am. But this is not what, what the Lord Jesus, what God told me. For you, Jesus, the Lord told me this and this and this. Like more easy rules. This would be the rule, you know. Be like the angels and don't involve yourself at all. Be like ascetic. Practice celibacy, basically. 
He says, because that was their lineage, the lineage on which they were. And he says, but this, not everybody can accept this word, like not everybody is so tough and prepared for this, but only those to whom it has been given. It's like a grace. If, if you are made to be such a one, then it's like it has been given to you. And he says the famous paragraph where he says, for some are eunuchs before eunuchs, like people castrated, people who lost uh, their testicles in particular, the eunuchs. So he says, for some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage, they have made themselves eunuchs, literally in the text. The uh, modern translator said renounced marriage to make more clear what it is, but originally is made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Basically, he said there are people who are born incapable of sex because of some natural disorder. They are born that way. There are people who are made eunuchs by others. In that days, there were many slaves who were castrated to take, to take care of people's harems and stuff like this. So world was a pretty cruel place. Sometimes children were caught in slavery and they were castrated because they were supposed to become eunuchs guarding the harems. So some people are eunuchs because of some disease. Some people are eunuchs because of others made them so. That's their karmic destiny. And other people made, they have made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven, which simply means renouncing sex because of aspiring for enlightenment, for because they wish to reach the kingdom of heaven. And basically that idea says clearly, some people have given up sex because they wanted to reach enlightenment. And there was a choice. They had to make this choice. Obviously, at least openly, although there are some later effects in Christianity, Jesus is not recommending to people the tantric version. There are the Gnostics of Egypt and others. They claim that actually there must have been some secret sexual teaching in Jesus' teachings, which was not preserved by the church, and that there would exist some secret sexual rituals, some further teaching about that. Only the old Gnostics, the Coptic Gnostics of Egypt, especially in the old form, only they had that teaching. It's mentioned in the Gnostic scriptures under the name of this bedchamber prayer, bedchamber ritual or whatever. And uh, in that way, there may be something there, but obviously to the masses, Jesus is either preaching a disciplined marriage, in which you dig deep, even if it hurts you, and you don't go around too much, here basically at all, the way he says it, and, or, you make yourself eunuch for the kingdom of heaven, which means that you renounce the carnal pleasures, just for enjoying the spiritual treasures. So in this way, uh, here he says, the one who can accept this, should accept it. Jesus is very aware of the fact that although he tells the truth, and this is a fundamental key, not everybody is tough enough, devoted enough, has enough aspiration and clarity to be able to push it to such a level. That is why here there are degrees to which you can go.
the final parable which I will read for tonight and then we'll stop is in the middle of the 19th paragraph here 19th chapter it's about the little children then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them like mothers wanted their children blessed but the disciples rebuked those who brought them like don't disturb the master with this kind of shit Jesus said let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And basically it's again his beautiful love for children, and his beautiful love for this candor and purity. And he says again, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's like the enlightened being is a little bit of a child himself or herself, because of living in this simplicity, in this purity of their consciousness. And uh, this is a famous statement of Jesus, let the little children come to me. It's like everybody who is a little child can go to God. It is for this reason that there are various traditions in the Christian tradition that if, for example, a small child dies, it becomes like an angel. Its soul is so clean, it is so pure, it did not have the time to develop all these armors of heavy... Uh, prejudices and mental constructions and then that spirit is in such a pure shape that it belongs rather to the angelic formations it's actually a bit forced because the angels are not born out of human beings but uh, it's a way of expressing something uh, about from this and it ends this paragraph ends by saying when he had placed his hands on them he went on from there so he gave the blessing and this ends this paragraph. I will not read further. There comes the famous parable of the rich young man, but it's late enough as I can see. Let's see if you have any questions, comments, issues. We have been going again a bit into these teachings. And let's see if there is anything you'd like to add or ask. Please. You said the last time that Jesus didn't want Maria Magdalena to touch him in this thing. She be taking him out of it because it's strong enough. No, it is a state in which he was in the diamond body, he was in the light body. His body had been transfigured and transmuted in light, and such a body would have the sensitivity of your aura and the sensitivity of your eyeball or something like this. That is why touching it would be like an offense. It would be like soiling it. It would be like it's something so sensitive, so vibrant, so pure, so divine, that contact with even a lovely human being would mean something like, uh, I don't know, having a snake crawl on your skin and it would give you goosebumps only to think about that. Or, you know, it's kind of an unpleasant contact of something much, much more dirty, much, much more earthy, much, much inferior. At that moment already, Jesus was transfigured in his light body and any physical contact was until he stabilized that, until there was a period of 40 days when he stabilized that. And in those days, he like was, he said... 
Don't touch me because I have not yet turned to my Father in heaven. That means after I turn to my Father in heaven, maybe then you can touch me, it's okay. But in this transitional period of 40 days, I am suffering a process of transformation and it's kind of I'm a bit sensitive, I'm a bit skinless. And don't touch me because it's kind of, I cannot take any human presence, anything too close because of this. It's like a butterfly shedding its cocoon and opening its wings. And in the beginning the wings are a bit wet and frail and it needs a little bit until it can open its wings and then fly. It's simply the reference to a mysterious period of transition that Jesus had to go through in those 40 days, for coming fully to his diamond body, to his rainbow, to his body of light. Is there a contradiction between the tantric uh, view of sexuality and Jesus's as far as, and how does that... We must admit that at least what is officially preserved, a little bit less in what the Gnostic imply without saying it very clearly, uh, Jesus seems to be a rather Vedantin type of teacher. That means on the dry side. He doesn't seem to be favoring any of these uh, things related with sex. Always saying if people can take asceticism, asceticism would be preferable for them. Today, you know that modern Bible research in the last 20 years or so, it has come up with a lot of these fancy theories according to which Jesus would have actually been married to Mary Magdalene, that actually they had a child and that's the blue blood, the blood lineages of the Merovingian French kings of the first Christian centuries, and there's a whole story about that, and they argue pretty powerfully on this with various uh, documents of the time, and of course with all kind of circumstantial evidence. It doesn't sound absolutely impossible to me from where I look upon things, that actually Jesus was sanctifying this side of the human existence, like if he was a human being, he could as well, exactly as he ate apples and pears and whatever else, you know, fish and bread and he did all the things and he accepted to have a large intestine and probably was squatting and shitting like everybody else, then it's kind of, why not if he experienced the uh, defecation function of the human being, why not experience at the same time the sexual function, especially when it is so relevant for many human beings in terms of procreation, creation and the others. So it is not completely impossible that from a strictly divine standpoint, Jesus should have embraced the whole spectrum of human existence, like touching every aspect of it. But we must admit that it's not mentioned in the Bible as far as we can see, and we must also admit that the great mystics of Christianity who are supposed to have used many, many hours, days, weeks, years, and whole lifetimes in praying, meditating, and identifying to Jesus, none of them really seem to have felt it that way, exception made of the Gnostics, again, 
which I'm saying. So most of all these gi- great giants of spirituality, Allah, Saint Basil the Great, or Saint uh, Augustine, or whoever you want to choose, Saint Anthony the Great, and all the big ones, they all of them felt that the way Jesus was reflected in their lives was pushing them towards celibacy and asceticism, not towards any feat of sex. And for this reason, uh, at least we can say, I will not say that Tantra is an opposition to the teaching of Jesus, but I will say that for a reason or another, it is 99% probable that Jesus did not wish to involve this kind of teaching in his teaching. Either because this was strictly an Indian thing, and it was based on Kama Sutra and things like this, and the culture of the Jews was already very tough. The traditional Jews at the time of Jesus, and some of them even today, among their 215 rules that they have to observe very day, every day to be really holy, like the rules concerning sex are completely disheartening. The sex according to Orthodox Judaism says that a man is never allowed to see his woman, his own woman, naked, enjoy her nakedness and beauty, touch her, caress her, fondle her, or have anything sensual. Sex, according to ultra-Orthodox Judaism, means that the man should dig a hole in a bed sheet, stick his penis through it, penetrate the woman through that bed sheet without really touching or seeing the woman, spray his seed, and if the woman gets pregnant, tough luck, and if not, better luck next time. It's this way it goes. I mean, this kind of sex is worse than zootechnical farming sex. It's kind of, uh, it's already something really, really dry and dead. When you come in such a society, then of course it's easy to preach uh, asceticism, because really to stick your penis through a hole is not much fun anyhow. From that to become celibate is not a big distance anyhow. It's like, you know, many people would say, rather than having sex through a bed sheet, forget about it, I'm just going to turn celibate anyhow, because this is dead boring anyhow. So in this way, uh, it is possible that in such a severe society, like the Jewish society so repressed about sex in this way, it is possible that Jesus, either he was informed about Tantra or not, a man who is supposed to be God himself, should have been informed definitely through miraculous knowledge about all the options on this planet and about uh, the divine alternatives to everything. Or we can say that either Jesus consciously knew about this or not, and perhaps he knew if he had been in India and in those centuries, in those years where he traveled, um, for a reason or another, he chose not to. There was no knowledge about ojas. There was no knowledge about this, the body. There was no knowledge about channels of energy, about sublimation, about yoga, about... And it's kind of... For this, to introduce this in a religion, Jesus should have simply brought all the treasure of yoga, of tantra, of hatha yoga, of body knowledge, of ayurveda, of all these to implement them just to explain, look, you can actually do it this way as well. And perhaps he thought it was not necessary. Perhaps he thought the environment in which he did, people could be as well tough to themselves. And actually the coming centuries, 
they showed that many men and women, they simply ran wildly in the desert and they have been very tough unto themselves into this way. So, after all, the judgment of Jesus seems to have worked for many centuries, even until today. Why not? That is why I, I never see Tantra as an opposition to the teachings of Jesus. I see it as an alternative, which for a reason or another, Jesus did not consider practical at the time when he made this revelation, and he considered that the other one was good enough, that people can cope with that one. It is... After all, if you take it like this, Tantra, ultimately, it is a path of love. It is a path that a man and a woman can become one. It is about like praying together, as Jesus says. It's like a lot of things can be done in union between, indeed, when love becomes indeed selfless and not just a bourgeois, lukewarm way of just satisfying the daily security needs and so on. So... Uh, it is, it definitely we are talking about love and especially in the tantric love making we are definitely not talking about uh, libertinism or looseness, right? Because it involves a self-discipline, it involves difficulties and when a man and a woman they struggle to hold their energy and to put it there, up in Sahasrara then automatically they are fighting against their own animal nature so it's an act of self-control, it's an act of, it's like celibacy, you know, it's like you hold yourself under will and you simply decide that, so I, again, I cannot see it metaphysically or in whichever way, I cannot see it as an opposition, but 99% uh, it is that Jesus did not indulge in this way himself, he, whatever he did, he did in three years and a half, you know. It was like a very short, it was more like his life was like a meteoric, like a lightning blow. It was simply like quick, efficient, clear, well, change the world. And it did. Let's stop for tonight. It's over midnight already. We will continue. Consult the program where we were left some two weeks ago when we had the final such lecture. We are somewhere in the 19th chapter. Paragraph number 16, the story of the rich young man. It is a story which we are using often as exemplificative when it comes to the aparigraha or attachment to material object possessiveness and therefore I will not feel the need to insist a lot because this one has explicitated a lot. Nevertheless, I will read through it. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Here, you can see that Jesus is making a fine distinction, a very fine distinction, because in the beginning he gives a quite dismissive answer 
like, what do you mean, what is good? It's like people are all the time trying to mix it up, to confuse it in all kinds of ways. And Jesus is always, when it comes beyond a certain point, Jesus is the one who is a fundamentalist, who is very much tough on some meanings. It's like the truth is very clear, and don't try just, I mean, you're asking me now some clever question, what could I do to be good, and so on. There is only one that is good, and basically he brings everything back to God all the time. We are talking about God. It's kind of, I can see it often in life, that some people are trying to replace the spiritual activity with all kinds of things which are like social activity, charitable activity, all kinds of other things. And nobody says that those are wrong. But it's kind of, you always have to be focused on what is essential. It's like not to try to find surrogate, replacements, second-hand replacements, second-grade replacements. The kind of, you have to be focused on what is spiritual. So the first answer of Jesus is kind of, he doesn't seem to be very friendly. He's having a kind of a stern attitude. Like, what kind of question is this? What, which ones, which commandments the man inquired? Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. This being, of course, taken from 